All right, today we start a new series, and uh, here's what that means. In our church, we don't think in terms of services or Sundays or Saturdays, but in terms of series. And today we're launching a new series, and some of you are new, and if you're new, it's great to be new because it's a great time to be new because we'll all be new together in this new series. And if you are new, let me tell you this, whether you're a guest or a visitor, or you just moved here, I know what happens this time of year, people are getting connected. Let me just tell you about the Weekender because I want you to get in a community group, okay? Because you're not gonna get all you could out of this series or any series if you just come on Sunday. The way that we work out the implications and applications of everything we're doing here is in group life throughout the week. And so the only way you can get in a group is to come through our weekender. And we've got a weekender, uh, August 25th and 26th. Let me just tell you a little bit about our weekender. Maybe I should tell you what it isn't. Cause I know some of you, you've been to churches and you go, ha ha, I know what this weekender is. This is a connections class. No, not really. Although you can get connected to groups and serving. Other people go, I don't want to sit through a theology class. Well, it's not a theology class that so will tell you a lot of what we believe and how we behave. Other people go, I don't, Kyle, I don't, is it a membership class? I don't want to be a member yet. I'm not, a, well, it's not a membership class. You could pursue membership afterwards if you want. What the member, or what the weekender is, is it's the inroad and on-ramp to discipleship and the life of our church. It's how you can go from talking about this church as that church to saying it's my church. It's how you can move from being a spectator to a participator, how you can connect your family to God's global purposes through our local church. So I just wanna give you an opportunity because we're really excited about what God's doing. We've got this last weekender before the fall and it's gonna be a great way to get connected as we head into the fall. So let me pray for that, for those who need to take their first step and next step. And then we're gonna dive into Joseph. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we just take a moment and I wanna just pray for people to take their next step and their first step, to, to move from being unknown to known in our church and I know for many people, this is a, a scary moment. Uh, what does it look like to, to move from a spectator to a participator? And I, I pray people would make that step, that people would connect their lives to a church where people can know them and love them, who also know and love God. Uh, Lord, I pray for people, even as they're moving to our city, as they're reconnecting to a church, that they would take this next step because the Weekender is such a joy to our staff. It strengthens our serving teams it invigorates the ministries in our church, Lord. So I pray many people would take this next step. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are in a new series today that we're calling Joseph. It's in the book of Genesis. So you can meet me there. I'll meet, oh, I'll meet you there in just probably five or seven minutes. But you can turn to Genesis 37. <clears throat> now, you may, you may ask the question, which would be a fair question. Why are we doing this series? Like, I mean, by the way, I think about this like 12 to 18 months in advance. I don't just randomly kind of flip pages in my Bible and go, this is what we're doing next. I mean, this is, this is thoughtful. This is planned. Why did I choose Joseph? Why did we choose this last 14 chapters of Genesis? Well, there's a couple reasons I want to tell you. Number one, this is one of the most beloved stories in all of scripture. And no wonder it takes up 25% of the book of Genesis. I mean, I, that's a lot. The creation of the world and the fall into sin only takes up three chapters. Uh, Joseph gets more time than Abraham, than Isaac, than Jacob, than Noah. So he seems to be a really important person. The second reason we're talking about this is he is the clearest type of Christ we have in the Old Testament. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's this discipline. I don't expect you to know this. There's this discipline called typology. And basically what typology is, is um, well, it's kind of like this. Have you ever met someone before and you're talking to them and you go, you remind me of somebody. And you think about it, for, you're just like my dad. When we say he's a type of Christ, here's what we mean, that Joseph is the clearest pointer and picture of Christ that we have in the Old Testament. There's, I'll try to show you throughout. There's at least 50 different ways that Joseph is just like Jesus. And so when we're studying Joseph, we're doing this in part to learn more about Jesus. But there's a third reason we're doing it. Yes, it's big and beloved in scripture. Yes, it's gonna show us Christ, that's gonna be great. Third, and this is really important, I'll get to this later at the end of the sermon. But this is a book, guys, to help you understand how to live with adversity and prosperity. And well, you go, well, that's all of life, exactly. 
the ups and downs of life. See, here, I don't know why you think this and I think this. Americans think this. We think life is gonna go like this. It's just, you're gonna make more money and you're gonna continue to be healthy and you're gonna have a lot of kids and they're all gonna love each other and love you and you're gonna have a great job and you're gonna have to be able to retire early and no one's gonna die and no one's gonna get disabled and no one's gonna get sick and it's gonna be progress. And by progress, we mean you just keep going forward and that's not how life works. Joseph's story tells us it's three steps forward, two steps back, then three steps forward, four steps back. And, and here's the thing about adversity and prosperity, and you know this, <clears throat> they can both corrupt your character. See people, this is so true, people are always looking for an excuse to be bad. And there's about 10% of them, every time something bad happens, they go, yes, because I've been wanting to indulge in some things. And I've been wanting an excuse so that if anyone asked me why I did this, I'd have an excuse to be horrible. So I, I, I get concerned when people suffer because I'm afraid it's going to corrupt their character because that's very likely to happen. But for Joseph, it makes him better, not bitter. But then <clears throat> on the other end of things, Joseph becomes unbelievably successful and that doesn't corrupt his character. And that's really hard because what, you know this, what happens in success, well, many things happen in success, but success by definition separates you from others. It's like, well, I'm different. And, and, and I have more money or I have more time or I have more opportunity or I have more authority. And it's very, very hard to use that well and not let, what do they say, too much time in the spotlight make you go blind, okay? But then the main theme, and this has been a timely theme for our church right now, is providence. I know that's a big scary word, but God works two ways. God works in miracle and in providence. That's an oversimplification probably, but that's how God works. So <clears throat> here's how miracle works. Miracle is when God intervenes, and I don't know what we wanna say, he bends the rules and laws of physics or whatever, and does something supernatural in time, space, and history, okay? There's only 42 miracles in the New Testament. It doesn't happen that often. That's why we call it miracle, not Monday, okay? <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. The number one way God likes to work is through providence. Providence is the invisible hand of God. It is how God supernaturally works through the natural things in your life. It's the way God, see, God loves to play chess. I'll move this pawn, this bishop, this rook, and it's going to take a long time because chess takes a long time, and I'm going to slowly move every piece into checkmate. So those, that's gonna be the themes. The, the theme we're gonna look at today is the theme of dysfunctional families because that's how it starts. Now, do you know anyone who has a dysfunctional family? If not, you might be the one with a dysfunctional family. <laughs> Well, honestly, there's a difference between, this is helpful to know this, there's a difference between broken families and dysfunctional families. Broken families are not your fault. Dysfunctional families are your fault. Broken families happen where something happened to your family. Disability, the family's broken. Dad or mom dies. They got divorced, you were betrayed. Illness and injury, sickness and suffering. It comes upon you and then you wake up one day and you go, this family is broken. A dysfunctional family is a family that it looks like, it looks like there's mom and dad and three beautiful kids. It's like, dude, that family is completely dysfunctional. What is dysfunctional? It's not operating according to God's word. Usually what happens is nobody's talking and nobody's trusting, right? You know, you've heard the saying, right? We move at the speed of trust. So have you ever met the family? It's like, why can't they decide where the kids go to school? And why can't they plan their vacations? And why can't they sync their schedules? And why can't they figure out their retirement? And why don't they, there's no trust. And you walk into that, I've, I've walked into homes before and it's like, I don't know if it's supernatural or what, psychological or what it is. I walk in and I'm like, there is an elephant in the corner. There is a skeleton in the closet. There is a snake under the rug. It's like, why do we have so many illustrations for that stuff? I think because it happens all the time. Here's the encouragement. 
Joseph comes from a broken and dysfunctional home, and God can still use him. Broken, his mom dies when he's six, giving birth to his younger brother. Dysfunctional, there's favoritism. His dad idolizes him. There's sibling rivalry. There's a bunch of horrible things, and God uses it. So this to encourage you, if you come from a broken, dysfunctional home, God could still do great things through your life. And also, if you came from a great home, we think God can still use you as well. Okay, that's our hope. But I want us to start with Jacob. Let's go to chapter 37, verse 1. And we, before we get to Joseph, we have to get to Jacob. <clears throat> the Bible thinks generationally, we think instantaneously. Look at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning. That's Isaac. In the land of Canaan, these are the generations of Jacob. So what you need to understand is the word generation shows up 10 times in Genesis, always to introduce us into a new section. And this book is primarily about, well, God, and then, and then Joseph. But if, you, if there's a third character in this book, it's Jacob. In fact, the story's introduced, hey, this is a story of Jacob's sons. And then as the story goes on, who's lied to at the end of this chapter? Jacob. If you know the story, and I don't expect that we all do, who needs to get to Egypt? Like who's like, Joseph's like, this guy has to get to Egypt. This is where, where everything's going. Jacob. And then who's grieving at the end? Like whose funeral are we grieving? And at the very end, Jacob. So this is a story in large part about Jacob. Now he came from a dysfunctional and broken family. Remember that? He's the younger of two twins, his older brother Esau. They didn't really get along. It's mostly Jacob's fault because Jacob was a liar, which is interesting because there seems to be generational sin. Jacob lies and now his kids are lying and he was the person who lied. Now he's the person being lied to and there's all that deep stuff going on. Um, he, co he comes from a family that didn't really get along and then he goes out, and remember, he marries four wives. Remember that? How many people go, that's probably not a good idea? <laughs> he marries two sisters. What's the only good thing about marrying two sisters? You just get one mother-in-law. Okay, that's so good. <laughs> I love my mother-in-law. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> um, but, um, it, you know, he marries, this is actually an important part of the story. He marries two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And this is what the Bible says. Leah wasn't as good looking. He didn't like her as much. And uh, Laban tricks him into marrying Leah. And, but Leah can get pregnant really easily, so they have all these babies. And then later he gets to marry Rachel, who he really loves, and she can't get pregnant for a long time. And eventually she gets pregnant. And after like Leah and has had all these other babies, she gets pregnant with her first kid. What's his name? Joseph. Then they have a second kid and his name is Benjamin. But remember, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin and Jacob's idol in his life, the love of his life, the sun and the solar system of his life was Rachel. She dies. So you can't not worship anything. So he transitions his worship to Joseph. So to understand the story, you have to understand that Joseph is the favorite son of his favorite wife. That's who we're introduced to. Look at verse two. <clears throat> it says this. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Those are the other two wives his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So there's a couple motifs, and when I say motif, I mean theme, themes that are in the Old Testament. And one of the themes is you often meet people God is greatly going to use, but you meet them when they're young. You meet Daniel as he's chained and heading to Babylon, and you meet David as he's a teenager fighting Goliath, and you meet the Lord Jesus Christ as an infant. And now here we go, we meet young Joseph, he's 17 years old, which here's what I want, this is interesting. If you think about Christianity, Every youth pastor says this, and every pa youth pastor probably should say this, that Jesus was the first youth pastor. And he kind of was. Because if you look at the disciples, I mean, they were teenagers, maybe. We're pushing it to say they were early 20s. Most likely they were mid to late teenagers. And so Jesus is leading the first youth ministry, okay? Today, when we tend to think about, the average American thinks about church, they think about a bunch of old people sitting in an old building getting ready to die. 
That is what Christianity is to the modern American. Christianity started as a youth movement of Jesus leading these 12 young men. Here's what I want you to know. People tend to think they're either too young for God to use them or too old for God to use them. And I don't know when, what the perfect day is when people go, I'm too young, I'm too young, I'm too young, I'm too old. So <laughs> like, well, when was the perfect day? It's like, okay, so God is going to use him, and this is always hard, and I don't like saying this out loud because I don't know what this means for you or me. But before God's going to use someone greatly, he needs to usually break them deeply, and that's what we're going to see in this story with Joseph. Because Joseph's not a great guy right now, guys. Now, later, he's a great guy. In fact, after chapter 37, there's not one negative thing said about him, which is very interesting because it's very hard. The Bible's very honest about people. So it's almost impossible to find anybody in Scripture outside of the Lord Jesus who nothing negative is said about. And Joseph would be at top of that list, except, do you see what it says? He's a tattletale. We don't like tattletales, right? This is why we say snitches get stitches, okay? This is, we don't, we don't like tattletales. We don't like them when we're a kid, right? We don't like when people tell on each other. And, and I thought about that for a long time because why don't we like tattletales? I think it's a, cu a couple reasons why. Normally, they're hypocritical. Normally, they're trying to find something wrong with you um, while they're struggling with their own things, and they're going to you know, show that instead. But I think the bigger principle here is no, so if we're sticking with the theme of dysfunctional families. What makes a family dysfunctional? A family is dysfunctional when one or everybody in it is always looking for what the other people are doing wrong, right? I mean, by the way, this is like, it, whatever I say about the family is also true about the church or your business or your neighborhood or the state. Like, you know, what's a really sign that the state is failing? When they encourage people to spy on each other. You know, China in the surveillance state. I mean, that's the classic example of this. But when you have everybody spying, I think they said in Germany, one out of three people who lived in Germany was a spy during the Nazis. Could you imagine living in that kind of environment where one out of every three people was a government spy? No one can live in some environment where I'm watching you all the time to figure out what you're doing wrong so that I can expose it to other people. Why do people, what's the number one reason that people rat on other people, that people are tattletales, that people spy, that people report people? Because it's the easiest way to elevate their status unjustly. So say you're at work. It's very hard to be a good worker. It's very hard to stand out. It's very hard to be noticed. It's very hard to excel. So the best thing I could do is put someone else down and immediately I look better. So this isn't good. This is not a good beginning for Joseph. And we're going to see in just a minute why his brothers hate him so much, but it gets worse. So he's the tattletale, but then look at verse three. <clears throat> now Israel, Israel and Jacob are the same person. Israel just means he who wrestles with God. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. That's favoritism, we'll talk about that. Because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. There's that famous coat that we all talk about. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peace with him. I don't wanna talk about this for a long time, but I want you to notice that the hinge on which this horrible story begins with all the terrible things that are gonna happen in the next few chapters. It all starts with favoritism. You know, I know people think favoritism isn't that big of a deal. It's like, obviously it is. It's one of the major themes or minor themes underneath the book of Genesis. And I think the first thing, I'm not gonna re-preach a parenting sermon. I did that two weeks ago. But I think one thing parents need to realize is they can have favorites. If people, if people think that, you know, the parent who goes, I would never have a favorite. It's like, well, you're probably gonna have a favorite. I mean, the quickest way to get to, I will definitely do something is to think I can never do it. So obviously the Bible warns us of these things because it's possible. Now, why do parents have favorites? Well, sometimes they have favorites because one of the children just excels and it's hard not to give them so much attention and be so excited about that exceptional child. I mean, in two, or next week, in two chapters, but next week we'll look at this, we find out Joseph is one of only four men in the Bible that were told he's good looking. 
And so it's like, okay, so he's very good looking. Was that? I don't know. So I've seen, I've seen families have favoritism because one child excels in athletics and academics and all that kind of stuff, and they get extra attention. And then I've seen the exact opposite happen. I've seen the child who's suffering and or has a disability or is awkward or, or, or has no skill sets. I've seen them get extra attention. And, and, and that's fine to get extra attention, but I've seen them become the favorites. Here's what you have to tell your kids. Same thing I tell my kids. God, I love God the most. Mom, the second most. You're all tied for third. That's what I told them. And then all my kids are like, oh no, you know, I want to be third, you know? It's like you, you need to, because also what kids will do is then they'll start to have favorites based on who their parents' favorites are a lot. Of this is why the Bible says obey your parents, not obey your parent. Because kids, even from a young age, they'll try to divide and conquer the, the, the kids, right? You're like, you're four years old. How are you doing this? You know, you're so smart. So, so crafty. So favoritism is a big deal. And it's, it's, it's warned of here. Uh, well, here's what parents need to do. Parents need to uh, understand that the oldest story, we actually all need to understand this because a lot of us have siblings. We need to understand that the oldest story in the Bible outside of Adam and Eve is a story of sibling rivalry. I don't know what that means. I don't know why the most ancient story we have about the family is about a brother killing another brother. That's the first story. It's like, is it, are we that horrible? It, that that has to be the first story that we're told? It's like, you know, and I wanna say that the role of a parent while the kids are in the home is to make sure the kids get along, you know? And I pick on homeschoolers all the time, but I will tell you, one of the great things about homeschooling is that what happens when you homeschool is you give your kids an opportunity to be very good friends because they're not going here and she's not going here and they're not going over here. It's like all of you together and you're going to learn how to get along and you're gonna be with each other all the time. And one of the things, whether you homeschool or not, you wanna teach your kids, is like, guys, look, you could have the best relationship in the world with each other if you choose to. And because don't you hate, I mean, don't you hate it? I mean, how many of your families, I know this, this is part of the story of my extended family. It's like, you show up somewhere, you're like, why don't the ants get along? Why does Uncle Bob come late and leave early? Like, why don't those two brothers, why haven't they talked to each other in 12 years? What's going on in this? It's like, look, you need, here's what my dad said. This is completely unbiblical, but my, my dad, my, he still says this to me and my brother. He says, guys, if I die and you are not super close, I will haunt you. <laughs> and I feared that my whole life. Um, but you wanna be very close with your siblings. This whole story is gonna go downhill because of that. But then there's that goofy coat he gives him, right? That, that coat was a symbol of status, of luxury, of ease. If you know any, which most of us probably don't, but if you know anything about you know, they, these guys, what the brothers did, they were nomads. They walked with sheep. They slept under the stars. I mean, they had a, what we would consider just a low level, I mean, dignity and everything, but low level blue collar job. So why is the brother showing up, you know, in this nice, you know, beautiful coat? Because he wasn't working. So the coat meant a couple things. First of all, the coat meant that he was the chosen son, not Reuben. Reuben was really the firstborn, but really, even though Joseph wasn't the firstborn, the coat was the sign that he was going to be the heir and the father had chosen him. You know, it's funny, my son, who's now nine, but I, he said to me a year or two ago, he said, dad, I wish we lived in biblical times. I said, why is that? He said, because then when you and mom die, I get everything. <laughs> that's what he said to me. <laughs> well, that's how it was back then. And so they're like, wait a second, it should go to Reuben, but it's gonna go to Joseph. And but then there was this idea of the, the coat represents ease, it represents status. Um, you know, he shows up with a clipboard. He, he's gonna have to learn, we'll see this next week. He's gonna have to learn how to do hard work, but he doesn't really know how to do any hard work yet. Because he goes and reports to, you know, watches his brothers, doesn't work. You can imagine how upset they are. Takes notes on how they're doing and then goes back. I mean, this is not good. 
One of the hard things about being a parent is to figure out how much deprivation our children need so that they will grow up. You know, Joseph had been overly pampered and had a life of ease, you know, and I consider myself fairly average, normal, middle class, but it's hard even for me and Margie. It's like, you know, within reason, like most things that our kids want, we could give them, so should we? You know, and it's, it's a hard, and the more money, and some of you have a lot of money. It's like, you know, should you buy your daughter a brand new car on her 16th birthday? It's like, I know all the young girls are like, yes, 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 yes. But it's like, you know, don't we all see like the, I don't know, I think every person sees the 16-year-old boy or girl pulling up in a brand new Porsche to their high school and go, not right. And maybe you can't articulate, like, not right, not good for her. I don't think working at Chick-fil-A pays for that Porsche, you know. <laughs> I don't think she's working. I don't think that's going to be good for how boys look at her. I don't think that's going to be good for how girls look at her. I don't think that's gonna be good for the expectations for her life. That's an extreme example, but we all have to, part of the problem with Joseph is he's never had to work and he's gonna learn. We'll get there next week, but the, our estimate as we put it together is it takes him 10 or 11 years to become the head of Potiphar's house. He's got to, guys, he's gonna to have to learn Egypt, Egyptian. Let's continue the story. So he's got this coat and then he has a dream. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. This is, I think, the second or third time we're told they hate him. And he said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. So God, God can speak many ways, through Christians and through our conscience and through creation. He can speak through dreams. The primary way God speaks is the written down word of God, but they didn't have the written down word of God back then. And so he gets these dreams, we find out later, that they really are from God. And he tries to begin to interpret them. He, he tells them this, look, he says, verse five, or verse seven, I'm sorry. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more. Third time we're told to hate him because or for his dreams and for his words. A couple things here. First of all, there's again that theme or motif that the person who God chooses is often first rejected by those closest to him. That was true of David. His father forgets him. That is true of Jesus. His family doesn't understand him. This is now true of Joseph. His brothers don't understand him. But I think there's also a second principle. I mean, it, well, actually a second thing we see that's bad about Joseph. So we don't know why he shares his dream. We, we can't get his motives. Like the first bad thing we're told about him is he's a tattletale. The second thing is he's either naive, which is usually connected to favoritism. I mean, this is well documented. That, the, you know, the more you experience favoritism in your life, which is basically people think you're better than you are, then you tend to be naive about how life works and who you, anyway, so that makes sense. But we also don't know if he's prideful, but I, do, I think there's a principle here is that you have to be careful who you share good news with. These brothers were not the right people for him to share this news with. It, it's, it's hard to find the right people in your life to share good news with because you know, there's a verse in Romans that says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And what's interesting about that verse is it's actually easier to weep with someone who's weeping because if someone's sad, then you say, I will come down to you. I can do that, I'm up here, I'll come down to you and I'll help you. But if somebody's sad or not doing well and you ask them to rejoice, they have to leave where they are. And I think this is particularly hard on the brothers because he's the younger brother. It's very hard when people who are younger than you are more successful than you. That's very hard on people. They, they tell you in the corporate world, like, well, get ready for the first time you have a boss that's younger than you. And you're like, how did you get here with less time than I have? What does this say about me? It's very hard on people. They don't like his potential. So they get angry. We'll see what happens next. 
Then he dreamed another dream. Dreams always come in twos with Joseph. He gets two dreams, then there's the baker and butler will get a dream, then Pharaoh gets two dreams. So two, two, and two. And then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers. And he said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. This one's more dramatic. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. We think maybe the father kept the saying in mind because if you know the story of Jacob, he also had a God dream. So maybe there's a principle here of something like, it's very hard to believe something that you've never personally experienced. But Jacob's had this experience, so he keeps it in mind. But then here's what happens. Then it gets bad. Verse 12, now his brothers, so you can see they're, they're jealous and they're hateful of him, and he's a tattletale on them. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, that's again Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, here I am. So I want you to see providence, the invisible hand of God in all this. Because this meeting with his brothers is going to lead him into slavery down in Egypt. And this never happens if his dad doesn't send him and he says yes. But there's more, watch. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Look, at this is very interesting. The providence of people, I want you to see this. And a man who we don't get his name found him. So Joseph doesn't find somebody. Somebody finds him while he's walking in a field. What a coincidence, we would say. Well, there's no coincidence, you know? Look what it says here. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. That was 12 miles away, which was a long time back then. Obviously, there's no cars or anything. So here's the point. Joseph would have never found his brothers if this man didn't find him. It's like, think about this. Can the world be constructed in such a way that one meeting with one person can change a person's life? Yes, somehow. I don't understand how that could be true. But that is how the world, if he doesn't meet this man, he doesn't find his brothers. If he doesn't find his brothers, he doesn't end up in the pit. If he doesn't end up in the pit, he never gets in the palace. If he doesn't get in the palace, he doesn't tell the dream. If he doesn't tell the dream, is you know, it's, Huh? Really? If he doesn't tell the dream, you know, he doesn't save Egypt. If Egypt isn't saved, Israel can't come. If Israel doesn't come, we don't get Jesus. It's like, can, does everything in the world depend on this one meeting with this one man? In some strange way, yes. And I don't understand how the world works that way, but that's how the world works, and that's how it works for you. It's like, could every interaction that you have be that important? Unfortunately, yes. Well, because think about this, okay? And because I think you might find this interesting because it's not infrequently where people ask me questions like, well, how did you get here to two cities and how did we come to Winston? And I thought about that a lot this week because I thought about my own life and I could think about my marriage or my family or whatever, but I thought, well, what about this church? Like providence of people in the church. Do you know that this church exists because of two people? Um, none of whom you've ever heard of um, and neither of whom I know well. <laughs> there was a guy named Rupert Leary. Rupert Leary was a guy that I think he, I think, I don't even know what he's doing right now. I think he does real estate near Clemson. Um, he was a guy that w was working for a church and I knew him through another relationship. And he said to me, uh, have you ever thought of being a college pastor? And I said, well, I thought about it. I'm getting out of kind of college ministry on the college campus. He said, I know a church and my, my best friend's the associate pastor and I'd like to put you in line and connect them. That's how I got the job at FBC Durham. Well, then I'm living in Durham and Rupert's living in Durham. And then I'm at a coffee shop and I see Rupert one day, three or four years into being in this role, 
And we reconnect. Oh, man, not seen you for years. And he said, how's it going? I said, good. He said, I said, uh, I'm really thinking about planting a church. He said, I think I've got the right connection for you. I'm like, are you an angel? You know, that's what they, he said, I, I know a guy at the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, and I think that you'd be the right connection, and I'd love to connect you there. And so he connects me there. So that's how I got to the Summit, one guy. Seriously. And, and then I'm at the Summit, my boss at the Summit. So I get into the residency, and when you get into the residency at the Summit, like sometimes you know where you're going to plant. Like there's certain guys who come in, they're like, I'm going to Miami, I'm going to Asheville, I'm going to San Francisco. I came in, I'm like, I would, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> you know? I don't, I mean, I'd like to plant and pastor and preach, and, and, and I'm open to options. And I remember I had one conversation in a Waffle House with Mike McDaniel and my boss at the time. And he said, uh, hey, I think you'd be a good fit to stay in North Carolina because you lived in North Carolina for 13 years already. I think it'd be good for you to stay. He said, but we only have two cities left that we're interested in planting churches in right now in North Carolina. And I said, well, what are they? And he said, Boone and, and Winston-Salem. And, uh, and Boone didn't have a Costco, okay? And that was it. <laughs> it's like, I can't, I can't live there, you know? Um, but that, that, is, that, is, that was actually genuinely some of my thought process. And, <laughs> and I thought to myself, I was in Durham at the time. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm in a tobacco textile city with a private institution and in medicine at the center of it. And that's exactly what Winston is. Maybe this could work. Well, then I had to go tell my boss uh, at the time, um, go, kind of go back before that conversation with Mike. After I talked to Rupert, I went to talk to Andy Davis, my senior pastor at my church. And he didn't want me to plant until another year. He said, plant in 2017, not 2016, because some things with college ministry, but he was very godly. He said, I'll leave it up to you. Pray, talk to Margie, whatever. Well, I decided I want to go now, not later, which by the way, ended up being very strategic for many reasons I can't get into, but not least of them, get here as early as possible because COVID's coming, but we didn't know, okay? But I go into his office. He had this big office. You know, he, it was an old First Baptist church. It had this fireplace in it. It was just a beautiful office. And I walked into that, and all these books everywhere, and I sat down with him and I said, um, I'm, uh, I'm gonna go this year instead of next year. And I promise you, the first thing he said to me is, this is not what I wanted, but this is what providence has given us. It was like one of the deepest things someone's ever said to me. This is not what I wanted, but this is what providence has given us. And that began the journey here. And I could tell more stories that there was one person we met and that's how we ended up Goler. There was one person we met and that's how we ended up here. There was one person we met and that's how we found that property that we're moving to. You should think, it's a fun way. Fun's a shallow word. It's an interesting way to look back. You can't, you can't understand providence through the windshield. You have to look through the rearview mirror. And you'll, you will be able to see that's why I had the parents. You'll even see in the most interesting, that's why that one person was in my life for that short season. Sometimes those are the most providential relationships. One person for a very short season, and then I don't see them again. Well, let's continue on. Here's what happens. <clears throat> They're jealous, of course, right? Verse 18. They saw him from afar. How'd they see him from afar? That goofy coat, right? <laughs> That's how they did it. And before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said, here comes the dreamer, right? We nickname those we love and hate. Come now, let us kill and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Another motif or theme is that God's purposes and plans are always trying to be thwarted. That here, here, they, these people, they want to attack the purpose and plan of God, which is revealed in the dream to be through Joseph. And they're gonna be unable to do it, but they're planning to do it. Watch what happens here. Verse 21, but when Reuben, who they would actually later name a sandwich after, 
Um, <laughs> but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So we see a little bit of good in Reuben. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. Remember, they did the same thing to Jesus. The robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit, literally a cistern. So cisterns back then were 10 to 20 feet deep. They held water, but if they were broken, and thank God this one was, they would become trash heaps or prisons. So they're using this as a prison now. And they took him and they threw him into the pit. And here's another circumstantially providential event. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Now, why is that in the Bible? I don't know. But why would you tell me they did something horrible and then they went and ate? Because that doesn't seem important for the rest of the story. Maybe it's communicating something like, these people were just like us. We tend to think that, I don't know, there's a certain type of person who does horrible things and it's not us. Yeah, that's, why, that's why, you know, the Nuremberg trials and stuff like that, you, know, you remember, you talk, they would talk about people, the first time they saw Adolf Eichmann, they would faint. And it, he was the, one of the head guys of, of the concentration camps. And they would faint because he looked like their uncle. Or he looked like their dad. Or he looked like their friend. It's like they, they were expecting a monster to walk in. And there's Adolf Eichmann, he looks like everybody else. And you go, how could someone who looks like that do such horrible things? It's like, how could someone who goes, sits down, how can someone do something like this? How could the Nazis put kids in, in gas chambers and then go play and tickle their kids and, and put them to bed at night? It's like, I don't know what's wrong with us, but th that's what we're capable of. We're capable of doing horrible things and then acting like normal people in the next moment. That's what they're doing. So it says, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and they're on their way down to Egypt. So one of the questions this book is answering is, <laughs> the Israelites are gonna ask at some point while they're in Egypt, how did we get here? And the answer is Joseph. And the answer is Joseph's brothers selling you into slavery. That's how you got here. So it says this, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew up Joseph and lifted him up out of the pit. Now, I'm imagining Joseph coming out of the pit, right? He doesn't know what's happening. He's 20 feet deep in a pit. He's like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. I'm never going to do that again. Guys, I will, I'm not going to tell Dad. I'm going to get rid of this coat. I've learned my lesson. And he gets up from the pit and realizes it's actually not his brothers or not his brothers alone. They're going to sell him into slavery. So look what happens here. And they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus was sold for silver. Joseph was sold for silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many kellers and they brought it to their father. We don't know this for sure, but it's possible they did this to Joseph to get at their father. And who knows? People, our hearts are deep and dark, you know? Sometimes we want to destroy the things people love to hurt them the most. But they're certainly thinking about taking this. Look what it says. He brought it to their father and said, this we found, please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and he said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. So here's what's interesting as we begin to close out this first chapter. How does, how does this chapter end and how does this story begin? Because it's gonna lead to a lot of horrible things. 
a family secret. What makes families dysfunctional? Well, not talking and telling each other the truth and favoritism and sibling rivalry and tattletaling. And, but how about a family secret? Like, I, it's one of those things where I was like, man, I don't even know if I want to talk about this, right? Because I don't want a spirit of suspicion in homes. But every once in a while, it's helpful to... Because sometimes people are like, why aren't things working in my home? I don't get it. What's going on? Like, we're trying. It's like, well, I'm not saying this is, I'm not saying this is often the problem, but it's certainly something to ask. Is there something someone's not telling us? You know, secrets are very hard on people. They're very, I mean, think about how hard the secret is on the sons who have to keep it for, it's a 22-year secret. Very hard on them. Why don't people tell their secrets? This is an interesting thought. Because like, you know, which is the same as confession. Why don't people do that? Nietzsche had an unbelievably, he was so insightful on certain things. Nietzsche said the reason people don't tell you their secrets is it's easier to live with a bad conscience than a bad reputation. And most people have just decided a long time ago, I would rather live with a bad conscience than the potential of a bad reputation. There are three types of secrets. There are family secrets. Family secrets are secrets that everybody in the family knows, but we don't ever talk about, normally because dad or mom threaten us. If anyone ever found out, it would hurt our family. Right? It's like no one can know that dad's a high-functioning alcoholic. We can't talk about that. No one can know that this is an abusive family. Sometimes it's something more simple. No one can know how much debt we're in. I have to keep this a secret. This would be so embarrassing if anyone knew that we've been spending way more than we've been making for years and it's really hurting us. Sometimes there's individual secrets. That's probably the most common secret, right? There's something I'm doing. There's something I've done. There's something someone did to me. It's like, well, what, what's the first step if you have a secret? Here's what you need if you have a secret. You need one friend. That's the, so in the Bible, the definition of friendship is one I can tell a secret to. How do I know that? Because in Genesis 18, God tells Abraham a secret and then calls him his friend. So the biblical definition of a friend is someone I can share secrets with. And my encouragement to young people is try to find that when you're young. It's very hard to find that when you're old. Most people that have people in their life who they can tell these kind of secrets and confessions to, it's people they've known for a long time. It's their college friend. It's their high school girlfriend or buddy that they're able to, to, to talk to these things about. The third type of secret, so there's the individual secrets, there's the family secrets, and then there's what are called shared secrets. And those are secrets that part of the family has that they don't tell the other family. And in this situation, what's happening is you have a shared secret. You have something 11 people know that one guy doesn't know, and they keep it forever. Here's a couple other things about secrets, because I don't, you know, I, I want people to be set free, because obviously in a room this size, obviously people have some secrets in here. I want you to know this, that the longer you keep a secret, the harder it will be to share because the more time will have passed. And the hardest thing, maybe some of you need to understand like, so it's very hard to share. So when I share secrets and confess, I'm using, there's kind of the same thing. It's hard to confess something to somebody, especially, it's like, why do people closest to people find their secrets out last often? It's because of, well, you're the hardest people to share with because we love you and you know we don't want you to hurt you and we're embarrassed. And But here's what happens. When you share a secret with somebody, the experience they have, so the experience that, of the person sharing the secret is, oh, thank God. I've I have finally had the courage to, like I've been holding on this and I've known all this and I've it took me forever, I finally have the courage to, to share this. The experience of the person hearing it is immediately, the past is completely different than what I thought. 
And that's probably the hardest part of hearing a secret that affects you. Because we tend to think of the past as fixed. Like, I could tell you what happened in the last couple of years. I mean, how much time you got? I'll tell you. Until you find out that it wasn't the past. And then you look back and you go, what? Every time you traveled for the last seven years you did this? It's very, very hard on people. We're try- I don't know the answer. We're trying to create an environment because it's not healthy to have secrets. We're trying to create an environment where people can tell the right person, get the help they need, be reconciled and restored. Because there is no reconciliation in the story until the secret comes out. And it takes a long time. Let me show you how the story ends. It ends like this. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted, and he said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And then verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. There's some foreshadowing there. We'll get there next week. An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So the story ends where Joseph goes from experiencing what I might call a pampered providence his whole life. So you get to be born into the patriarch family. You get to be the favorite son of the favorite wife. You get to have the. You get to be called the heir. You get to have all the status. You get to uh, get the great coat. Whatever it is, he he has a pampered providence to now for the first time in his life he's about to experience a painful providence. And for the next several years, when we'll see this, is the story of Joseph's life, and he's going through a painful providence. In Egypt, Think about it. He goes from favorite son to slave. He goes from being at home to being away in Egypt. He's going to have to learn a whole new language. He goes from being with his family to being all alone and forgotten. And what's interesting about this story and, and how God is, to use a, 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 the phrase I've been using, the way I feel like this is very providential for my life and for our church is what happened is last week, um, Caleb, uh, one of the other pastors here, if you were here, he preached, ended our series on Ephesians, which was great. And this is probably more information than you want to know, but normally it's, it's very rare for me to be in town and working on my sermon the week someone else is preaching. Just the way my schedule has worked, it does, that doesn't happen often. It happened when Caleb was preaching. So here's what was really neat. I finished my sermon before Caleb preached his. So that means that when I showed up on Monday of this last week, my sermon was already done. That never happens. So I started working on the next sermon in the series, and I started to write that on Monday. And I was like, this is going great. And so and then I started, and this has never happened. Then I started to write the next sermon because I was like, well, or not the next sermon, but the next part of, the, part of uh, the sermon on Potiphar and temptation and we'll get there next week. And I was in the middle of working on my next sermon for next week when I got the worst phone call that I've gotten in my whole life. Um, you know, and, I, and I've written about this. It's on my Facebook and Instagram and different things. But I got a phone call at around 12 o'clock on Tuesday and I ended up finding out that my best friend and my community, it's all the same person, my community group leader and my directional elder had what we think is a heart attack while he was running. It's just the most horrible thing you can imagine to get a phone call and then, you know, I drive over to Louisville and, you know, I've never been, and I hope you never have to do this, I've never been with a wife the moment she became a widow. So horrible to do this. And the last few, we did, I did the funeral of my best friend here on Friday two days ago. 
And I just, like, man, we are in a, a, a painful providence as a church. I told my kids, you know, my kids are young, you know, but I told my kids, I said, guys, it's been seven years in this church. This is the worst thing that has happened and probably will happen in the history of our church. And my, one of my kids said, dad, is it worse than COVID? I said, oh yeah. I said, it's way worse than a global pandemic that shut down the economy, way worse. I mean, I'm dead serious for the way, for me, for my family, for the jumps. So I want you to pray. We're a big church, okay? A lot of you don't, you have no idea how large and important Andy Jump was in our church. He taught our residents. He, he, he was one of our elders. He was, a, I would have, one of his community, he coached other community group leaders. I had, a, I had a community group leader just call me weeping on the phone because of him crying over Andy and just his investment in him. And so guys, we need to pray for the jumps because here's what it feels like. It feels like Catherine and Isaac and Levi, their kids are 13 and 10. The image in my mind is they are like Joseph. They have been chained and they're sent to Egypt. And how I'm currently feeling right now is there's no dad in Egypt. There's no husband in Egypt. And I'm, wait, I'm waiting for them to meet Potiphar. And I'm waiting for them to have the dream that gets them in front of Pharaoh, you know? And I'm waiting for the end of the story. See, the reason we can handle this story, if you know it, is we, we can handle this horrible story because we have Genesis chapter 50. Now we have the book of Revelation, but let me tell you, well, here's what happens at the end of the story. The, the father gets the son he thought was dead back. That's beautiful. The brothers are reconciled. Our hope is in the resurrection, but right now we're hurting as a church and I wanna take a moment and I wanna pray for the jump family and the painful providence they're experiencing. Let's pray. Lord, you have us in our church in this moment right now because you, you knew what was gonna happen. This, this is providential and we wanna pray for Catherine and for Levi and for Isaac, Lord, I pray for our student ministry. I have never believed or, or felt the importance of our student ministry more than one of our when one of our families loses a dad. And you start realizing this is really important. Lord, help us to be the church. You know, in the church, you're supposed to have many fathers and many mothers and many brothers and many sisters, Lord. And we would never say we could replace Andy, but would we come alongside? Would we be at best spiritual aunts and uncles, Lord? Would we have hope for them, Lord? Would we are eternally optimistic, Lord? We know that we will see Andy again in the resurrection, Lord. But right now, Lord, we are hurting. Catherine is hurting. Isaac and Levi are hurting, and we ask that you would comfort them, Lord. I pray that you would use this series to comfort our church, that you are with us in the painful providence, that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that somehow the world is structured in a way in which when the worst thing happens, the best thing can come out of it. And that doesn't make sense to me except when I look at the cross. And I see the worst thing happen to the best person in the world, and I see what came out of it was the salvation of sinners in every place. Lord, give us faith, give us courage. Let us walk together as a church family. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.